When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And I, I guess today's kind of a special episode for a number of reasons. First of all, it's the new year, so happy new year to everyone. Secondly, depending on what happens with our technological capabilities, this may or may not be up on YouTube. We may have a like a simulcast. You may actually be able to see our faces while we podcast. And then third, back by popular demand... The, the the trusty sidekick from the Midwest. I feel like you need a or you need a creative nickname or something. Um, Cody Hodak, how you doing? Good. I think when I think of good sidekicks, I don't know if I'm quite to the Samwise Gemji level yet, but that's what I aspire towards. If I can get to that level, I think I have transcended my my role as sidekick. He's like the ultimate sidekick, right? He is the Draymond Green of uh, Lord of the Rings characters. Oh, I see what you did there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sorry, did I transition too quickly? No, we call that a segue in the business. Um, (laughs) We were just talking about Draymond Green in our our group, our Slack channel, everyone involved with Thinking Basketball. We had a spirited discussion about him this week. Do you you want to just jump right in and and start with that? Yeah. So I forgot which night it was. It could have been Saturday night. It could have been Sunday night. Who knows? But I popped in one night, and I was like, are we sure that Draymond Green's offense is actually that impactful on a positive level. And that's kind of where we got carried away. Because my my whole thing, when you look at, I think, LeBron metric, um, basketball indexes, impact metric, last I checked from this season, he had a negative offensive LeBron. I think for the last four seasons, he's had a negative offensive LeBron. And Stephen Curry just has astounding numbers when he's on the court without Draymond Green. And... The Warriors aren't that much better offensively, even going back to like 2015 when Curry and Draymond are on the court together. And I was just politely asking, are we sure that Draymond Green's offense is as good as we want it to be because it's aesthetically part of the beautiful game thing? So this conversation took place after 8 p.m., therefore I was asleep. Um, My big question in being caught up on this is, are there, like, first of all, are there a lot of people who think Draymond's offense is really good. See, and I I do have to say that this is the flaw of my statement. Because when I was like, I think people are lower on this. I don't know who people are when I say this. It's just, I feel like my general vibe when I'm like, you know, scurrying around on Twitter sometimes and talking with some other folks is that people are super high on what Draymond does. Like the greasing, the, the offensive groove, yeah, so to speak, yeah. is super, super valuable. And I'm just like... Is it actually that valuable if you're not adding much of a, a scoring punch with it? Okay, so I think, to me, the interesting part of this, and it applies to a lot of players, but he's top of mind right now. If you are a player on offense that has sort of extreme strengths and weaknesses, and specifically your weakness is scoring and things around scoring, in 2016, 
those those years, those early Warriors years, he at least hit threes, right? He didn't hit them at like this incredible volume, but when you're hitting like 36, 39% of your three-pointers, whatever it was on a given season, then, especially back then, you kept you, you kept defenses honest and you retained the spacing by coming out uh, at the top of the floor. He's since sort of, um, how should we put it, lost the ability to shoot threes decently or effectively. I mean, maybe he never had it that much in the first place and it was just luck or variance, but that combined with his sort of lack of finishing in the modern game. He's not a great lob threat. He can attack the basket and get downhill, but that floater isn't super accurate. Um, he doesn't really have the hands or dexterity sometimes. I mean, I, I think you said it in the chat the other night. He misses more layups coming downhill than just about anybody. You know, that that classic scooping right-handed layup that falls just short. So guys like that to me, are fascinating to discuss because I think they have, it goes back to what I would call scalability curves. I think the shape of their impact is so radically different depending on the team they're on. And you can put him on one team, and if that team needs scoring, then he's almost going to be a negative. I want to say almost, we can table that, right? But it's going to be hard for him to extract a lot of value with his passing, playmaking, IQ, screening, reading and understanding of what's going on. It's like Grant Williams in Boston or something. Like there's just only so much mileage you can get out of players like that, right? Not that I think Draymond is as stylistically similar to Grant Williams as, you know. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, you get, but you get what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, we're five minutes in. I'm already getting myself in trouble. But like the on the flip side, if you put him on a team that has more scoring or – doesn't necessarily need that. And Dennis Rodman is a historical example that I think of. Then all of a sudden, all of the strengths that he has can become enhancers, right? They can become amplifiers. And so that doesn't mean he gets to play like that every minute he's on the court because his lineups and the people he shares the floor with change. But I do think it's wild to think about that, like, on some teams in the league, he may be not only not that effective, but just what we think of as a negative, depending on the role the coach asked him to play. And then on other teams in in the situation with Golden State, I do think he's a positive in the sense that you're putting him on very good offenses. And he's certainly not making the offenses worse unless you just want to say, hey, we're going to put in like a really good offensive center in his place. Well, then doesn't that make the point? You need a really good offensive center for the team to actually get better than Draymond's passing and sort of feel and high IQ role that he plays. I think what gets tricky too, especially when you think about him being on the current Warriors iteration, which is with Clay not being in and obviously Durant's long gone from there. But it almost feels like if you want to capitalize on Draymond's offensive impact, that you have to pair him with Steph Curry. Like it's actually like a like a twofold net negative if you have him with minutes without Curry. Because he's going to be in some of those lineups where he's going to, uh, his role for scoring would be higher than it should be. Well, that's the thing. I don't think even on good teams you can ever get every minute with a perfect lineup. But, like, okay, let's challenge this notion. I've heard a lot of people say Curry benefits from Draymond. Um, I think that's true to some degree in the same way that every good player benefits from having other players that complement them. But 
clearly, and something that I think you tweeted about and something I've looked at incessantly for the last few years, when Draymond's off the floor, Curry is still a machine, so much so that actually his his usage, his offensive load, his volume will tend to go up a little bit. I think just as a function of him having the ball in his hands a little bit more or there being fewer options, you know, when Steph runs around, scrambles the defense and Draymond's playing sort of a modernized point guard role, he can distribute to other guys. So Curry's statistical load, his usage isn't as high. When Draymond goes to the bench, Steph is forced to take more shots against the shot clock. They can't find as many good options, yada, yada, yada. Um, So Curry doesn't really need Draymond, but does Draymond need Curry? I think Draymond needs players like that, that he can act as the connective tissue for. I wonder, have you looked at, I can't think of off the top of my head, like how it looks with Clay Thompson, the idealized Jordan Poole, or 10 or 20 other high-level players in the league where we could go through the rosters and pick guys and be like, wouldn't Draymond help I don't know, Bradley Beal or someone like that. Like, wouldn't wouldn't he help guys as long as he's not your second offensive option, as long as he's like your fourth best offensive player on the court, isn't that going to provide some positive value, especially as you get to really, really high level teams? So, I yeah, that's I mean, that's the difficult part about analyzing Draymond's impact there is we've only ever seen him with, say, I mean, one of the five best offensive players in NBA history and then paired up with two of the 10 best offensive players in NBA history with one of the two of the five best shooters in NBA history. So like his offensive ecosystem is literally just perfect for what it would be. So it it almost feels unfair to every other player that might have some skill sets that are that have that sort of scalability curve that we just haven't seen them in those sorts of situations. And I'm not, I don't want to be taking the take or saying the take that's like, Oh, Draymond would be a scrub on another team. But you know, I, I do think that we might overall just overrate what he might look like most of the time in other lineups when he's not sharing the court with some of those high level offensive players. Well, yeah. And I don't know how many people actually overrate that. I think to me, that is the thing when you look at like, um, long-term plus-minus numbers or plus-minus numbers that are adjusted in a way that we think, yeah, that, that's pretty reasonable of, uh, in terms of reflecting how valuable that guy is for his team. That's that situation where you always have to go, ah, but what if he was on another team? What if you, what if you swapped out Curry and Durant for two on-ball guys or something, and then Draymond has to play a completely different role? Um, the other part of it for me is I trust guys with really high feel and basketball IQ. And I've actually come to trust this more and more and more over the years doing historical projects and things like that. Because I think I think what ends up happening is you're just less likely to be in situations where you go, oh, that was the coach's fault, or he was in the wrong offense. Or you, Draymond Green played one way at Michigan State. He was, I think in, I don't remember if it was Wooden or one of the awards, he was like National Player of the Year as a senior. And then he goes to the NBA and he realizes, and he's probably always had a team-centric concept in his head, but he realizes, I'm not going to be a guy who they run offense through in the NBA. I'm not going to be a guy who has a game where I can just get my shot off all the time in the post or in the mid-range or whatever. He was a good passer in college and a solid defender, but he really made himself not just a good defender in the NBA, but one of the best defenders of all time. And I think 
sometimes we take for granted in sports, even when we do these silly cross-era comparisons where we're like, this guy, he played against plumbers and he would do this or that. I think that applies more when a guy's like a one-trick pony or has a physical advantage. To me, when I see players who have this preternatural ability to read the game and they demonstrate within their career that they can do it a second way or a third way or whatever, I tend to have trust that if we put them in a different environment... No, it may not be as ideal as getting to uh, feed Clay and Steph and Poole and Kevin Durant. Nothing may be as ideal as that. But I do have a hard time thinking that the guy's just going to be a train wreck on offense or maybe anything more than a slight or moderate negative relative to other sort of average offensive big men. And something that I don't want to conflate here because it might seem like I'm saying this. I'm not saying Draymond overall we might overrate his impact. I still think his defense, like no matter where you put him, he's a complete and total genius on that side of the ball. And his impact is going to be astronomical just based on what he can do. And I think that people sometimes do conflate people's offensive and defensive impacts when they're like, oh, this person's overall impact is really good. Therefore, they must be a solid offensive and defensive player, unless it's a player, say, like James Harden, when it's just kind of known that you're not a great defensive player. So I definitely don't want that to be known. Like Draymond's defense is absolutely ridiculous for sure well and the other thing is we we had brought up a few other guys in this archetype uh, archetypes maybe not the right word but that that give you this kind of hesitation or this mold um, I think the ones that were mentioned were Ben Simmons we had Ricky Rubio Rajon Rondo from a few years ago came up where you have players who for the most part you're talking about scoring gaps or a lack of shooting, or these extreme things, and yet they offer other other positives. In Simmons's case, of course, as a defender, but one thing I noticed um, going back to right when he came into the league, obviously, is he's a good passer, and he's and he's really big. So even though I'd like him to be more physical, and I think he could get a lot more mileage out of being like an oversized Jason Kidd by using his body more and whatnot he at least is going to offer you, I mean, you see it in games, either in transition or off of offensive rebounds or roll actions or whatever. He's he's just a giant, big, athletic dude that can finish. So the more you put those guys in a situation to succeed, I think the less likely you are to talk about them as huge negatives on offense. But again, the tricky part becomes, is this five teams? Is it 10 teams? Do we care about the bottom 10 teams? I mean, that, that's another part of the equation to me. Like, why, why should I really care about Draymond Green's offense with the Orlando Magic or the Detroit Pistons when they're trying to rebuild? Why wouldn't I look at the 8 or 12 teams that have a realistic shot to compete for a title with that, with that new additional player? And from there, I almost think historically we overrate how much teams need scoring in those situations because you put the scores in... And if they don't have a nice complimentary game and they can't feel out other stuff, maybe the maybe the thing doesn't work quite as well as you would think. So I think that introduces the big philosophical question, which is what is like a threshold importance of scoring uh, in multiple facets, like either on-ball scoring or scoring from spacing, scoring from cutting, things like that. Because Draymond just overall just doesn't have a strong scoring game. I think looking back at the shooting percentages, he hit like nearly 39%, like you said, in 2016. And I don't think he ever crested 31% from three any other season since then. I don't even know if he's crested 30% in the last couple of years. So like, yeah, 
when you just jam a bunch of scorers together, it doesn't necessarily work. But at the end of the day, somebody needs to score the ball. And NBA defenses are good enough that sometimes you're going to be in a sticky situation where you're not just going to be able to beautiful game your way to an easy basket. So at what, what level does an offensive player need to be a scorer to actually be a plus impact offensive player? I would suggest, maybe counterintuitively, that you can be a plus impact player without being a good scorer. And the threshold you're really talking about is kind of being a really good offensive player, being a star, a pseudo star, something like that. Because you just never will be able to take on that role, right? Dennis Rodman, I hope we can all agree, if you're familiar with his offensive rebounding exploits, was a positive offensive player in the last few years of, you know, the the second three-peat bulls and things like that. He actually has a really fascinating footprint because all the guys around him when he's on the court, all of their offensive loads go up, or to use Cody's words that he likes these days, they shift up, right? And that's because he's so uniquely complimentary for scorers and volume scorers because he never needs the ball upstream in the possession, but he goes and keeps the possession alive, and he's a pretty good passer. So he's always going to kind of be, um, he, he's, he reminds me of the guy fetching ground balls in baseball or something. He's just like always restarting something for the scorers. So I don't think you need the threshold to be a positive, but I do think you need some kind of threshold once we start saying, no, this guy's like really good. And when you put him on most contending teams, he's just going to bump their offense up, you know, a noticeable level. I think also, though, and I don't want random NBA players to catch strays like this, but, like, let's say Draymond Green had the scoring package of Andre Roberson. Like, I feel like that would pretty solidly make him a net negative offensive player, even with his genius-level feel on that end. Boy, that's... that's I don't know, because he still has the passing, right? He still has height as well. Like, you know, that's another thing being able to play this role in the game today. And it's not a new role. It's a role that Walton and Unseld played in the 70s. And it's a role that, I mean, there were teams in like the 20s and 30s, the original Celtics playing this like pivot role where you have a big person who can see and and pass over the top and things like that. Like this, this is a thing that's valuable. And it's really common today. And so if you take Andre Roberson and you give him that, does he then become the huge negative on offense for you? Does he be done, does he then become that guy that you don't have to guard anymore? I, that's the that's the rub. I don't I don't know. And I think I'm even thinking back to your your most recent breakdown of the Warriors and the Suns game. And there were actually a couple times you you might have said it two or three times I think maybe two times where the spacing for the Warriors is messed up at least in the first matchup that they have because Draymond is set on the weak side. And yep. his defender is able to help off significantly, and that just jams up Golden State's uh, Golden State's offense. And so when when they give him the ball, like sure he's able to create more, but there's all so many other issues that might be happening when he doesn't have the ball. So it's not even necessarily like on ball scoring he doesn't have, but these other aspects where he's not like a strong offensive rebounder, and he's not even an average spacer. Where I it, it just gives me a little bit of pause. I'm not trying to say anything definitive here, but it's just a question that's been been kicking around my head lately. So, do you have him as a negative on offense when you think about him? Is that what I don't I don't know. Okay i I think I think what I came down to is right now with his role with the Warriors, he's probably a net neutral or a slight 
positive. But if you were to somehow give me more definitive proof that he's negative, I, it's one of those where I wouldn't walk away surprised. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I guess that that's kind of where I've been leaning. What do you think that's of that? That's the cheapest answer I've ever given. That was no, just that, disgusting. No, that was a good answer. That was a good answer. <laughs> but it also makes me think that you view him as a negative because if that's his best case situation, then most scenarios he's going to be worse off than that. Yes. And I don't know, yeah. how, I don't know how that's different that different than the way I see him either. I think the real question for me is, how much of a positive do I give him credit for at his peak when his shot was working and he was younger? I mean, the, cra- the crazy thing is, like, Cody, in 2016, in Game 7 of the NBA Finals, this is, this is one of the greatest games, you know, in NBA history in terms of stature. He, he didn't he have, like, 32 points. I still, it's very, very strange to still think about. It really was. It's like a James Worthy type performance, like just going out there. It was, and it felt like that. And even in that postseason and in other postseasons, there were moments where he turned up the dial on his scoring. And I don't think he has that anymore. And so I do think, to me, it makes it a more complicated situation where you have a guy where you're like, is he just a a positive at all? And then that's a tough question of sample size because you're pointing to one single game or you're pointing to one single season. But when you stretch it out to multiple seasons, if you're roping like a three-year peak... Like, he was never really an average shooter. It's just that one season and a one game in that one season where he had that huge game, whereas you're pointing to his offense and being like, oh, look at how, how positive he was there. So, again, that I, I just feel like there's a lot of different counters going ahead in my head, and that's just not leaving me alone with this conversation. So, speaking of sample size, the Warriors just beat the Jazz the other night. And they beat the Suns before that. Um, how are you feeling about the way the West is looking, do you, do you consider them heavy favorites at this point or did did you catch that jazz game? By the way, I caught the fourth quarter of that jazz game. I caught the ending when the Warriors just kind of picked it up. It's like, all right, this game's all of a sudden over. That was a, that was a dandy. That game, that game was fantastic. The jazz. um, I think it was nationally on NBA TV, right? Which I believe meant most people saw it with the jazz broadcasting crew. The Jazz went box and one on Steph Curry in the first half, and no one calling the game seemed to notice this. But they did it because Whiteside, I I think this is why they did it. I don't think they would ever do it with Whiteside in. Whiteside was out in concussion protocol because he got smacked in the face the night before. And Gobert comes off the court, and they basically have a smaller lineup. They have like the Rudy Gay at center lineup. And for a ton of those minutes, and I, I never went back and checked the score, but for a ton of those minutes, they were actually running box and one, and it got a little shaky. And I kind of wonder if that was the difference in the game or if that's something we would ever see in a playoff series when they were configured differently. And then that, that game just had a ton of ebbs and flows that was awesome. Who was the one guarding Curry? Was it Royce O'Neal? It usually was Royce O'Neal, yeah, off the top of my head. Yeah. I feel like he's the only jazz perimeter player that I'd really trust with going to a box and one to take someone like Curry one-on-one. Isn't this the problem with them, though? I feel like they need a trade more than any other contending team, maybe more than any other team in the league right now needs a trade. Like we can look, the, the trade machine guys, they like to focus on teams that are like falling apart like a soap opera, and they say that team needs a trade. But I mean, in terms of the landscape of the league, if the Jazz make a trade that kind of helps them and shores up these things, that changes the championship picture. I don't know who else, without a blockbuster move, could say that among the contending teams. Clay's coming back for Golden State. 
Phoenix has kind of got their, their, their set. They've kind of got their guys and they're going to go to war with them. Brooklyn's getting Kyrie back for 22 road games at the max. Like, I, I don't know the the Bucks. We could talk about the Bucks and Lopez's back situation, but the Jazz, as good as their offense is, as good as they are in general, I felt like that game demonstrated the point you just made, which is no one can stay in front of anyone anymore. And Royce O'Neal is the closest that they have. He's still not what you want in that situation per se. And Joe Ingles, who I thought should have probably won the sixth man of the year last year, still good shooter and passer, but. Um, Joe is truly now slow Joe and I just, some of these guys just cannot stay in front of anyone on defense. And I think it's a problem at the high level with Utah. I think that the big conversation from during the summer was once they got Rudy Gay, they were like, Oh, this is going to solve a lot of the issues we saw during the Clippers series. Cause they can run them at five and it'll, it'll, it'll solve the Rudy Gobert problem. It's like, it, it never, it never was a Rudy Gobert yeah, problem. Yeah. It was a fact that no one could stop people on the perimeter and getting someone that's a worse rim protector and sending them by the rim isn't going to help them on the perimeter at all. Are, are, are you suggesting that Rudy Gobert shouldn't be able to guard all five players on the other team? That's not a realistic expectation you have of Rudy? It's their literal expectation during the regular season, <laughs> and it works pretty well until you get to the playoffs. So not Rudy Gobert's fault. They definitely need perimeter defenders. I'm really not good at the trade machine game. Do you have people on top of mind that you think they could pull off a trade for? If, however good you are or bad you are at the trade machine game, <laughs> I'm worse. I just, I don't even participate. I don't even watch it, you know? When people throw up fake trades, I try my best to avoid looking at it for fear of confusing my brain that someone plays on a new... I'm like, was that a real trade? Does he play for the <laughs> Kings now? It's hard enough for me to keep track of who plays for the Kings without these fake trades. So um, I have no clue. It just feels like a realistic thing in that they probably, and I don't, again, I don't know their contract situation or their their assets in terms of being able to um, buy at the deadline, but it feels like a thing where they don't need a blockbuster move, but they just need a slight tinkering of the parts. Their offense is so good. If they could get anything back for some of their offensive firepower, uh, I do think it could make some, like you said, Rudy Gay, you thought, oh, this is going to help this situation because it gives them more lineup diversity or whatever it is. But, you know, Rudy Gay is not guarding guys on the perimeter. And Rudy Gay is not fitting in with the same players Gobert is fitting in and, and solving their problems. He's not some panacea on that front. So as well as he's played, I do feel like they need, they need something. The one thing, I'm going to circle back to your original question, which was something about Golden State being heavy favorites. The one thing that I like more about Utah this year, and it's this is one of those like gut feeling eye test sort of things where the stats are actually a little bit down on him, but I'm really vibing Donovan Mitchell this year. Like something about him, something about him offensively feels Ooh. different. His footwork on drives, he just, he's mass, he's the most fun driver to watch in the NBA right now. His footwork is just magical it's kind of Paul George-esque where they have these like loping awkward staccato things that's tough to to measure out he's just great at stirring the drink and starting the flow of like quick passes to get an open three or something like that and if if this is Mitchell I don't know how far can this offense carry them because their offense is incredible and it is because of him this year we 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 have to table this we have to come back to this in a few weeks because I'm working on a jazz offense video 
I think there will also be something on Mitchell that may be a separate piece because of what you're saying. I've had this thought in my head for a while, and it's really popping this year, but this dude has a different gear. And he's a very high-variance, high-volatile player, depending on whether that shot is dropping. But what's consistent is the driving game and the footwork and the Euro step and the speed and the quickness and the agility. And I'm not going to say who he reminds me of because I want to save it for whatever video piece I do, and then we can, we can come back to it. But let's put a pin in this and, and, and revisit it because I think you are spot on. Not only is that offense really, really, really good, but the guy who's sort of the key or the head of the snake or however you want to think about him does pop in a way that not only he hasn't before, but I don't think many guys in the league do, especially for someone who, you know, you look at Mitchell and you're like, well, he might be a negative defender. And, you know, he's got these, he's not a super high efficiency scorer. I don't think of him in the MVP. I don't think of him with the studs like LeBron and Durant. And I don't think of him that way. But when you look at the rest of the league and how competitive it is and how close all these guys are and how challenging it's going to be to put together the end of your all NBA ballot this year and things like that. Like that dude has another gear. Yeah, he absolutely does. I was always hardcore on the train of like, Oh, Rudy Gobert is the jazz's best player. And this is maybe the first time where I'm like, I kind of have to think about this question a little bit more just because of how he's, he's doing it. But then again, it's like, that might be a, a folly of a question just because they're such different roles. And it's just a weird comparison. Let's table it and talk about it. Okay, we'll come back to it. So we, we got on this because I was asking about the contenders in the West. It feels like to me, I don't I don't want to get uh, Chicago people um, or even or even those my friends in Cleveland. I don't want to get them upset because they've had such great years. But it feels like to me when you look at inner circle title contenders, we're looking at like a f- basically a five team race. Does that feel about right to you? What do you have for your five? Sort of like well, a the, Golden State, the... Phoenix, Utah, Brooklyn, exactly. and Milwaukee? Yeah, okay. that, those would be the five. Yeah. How do you feel about Miami? I think they're a sleeper. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I like what I, I like their roster construction for the playoffs. I obviously like their coaching. I like their two-way sort of potential. You know, when you think about title teams or title-level teams, if you're not extremely amazing – at offense or defense, like seven seconds, you know, or less Phoenix Suns or the 08 Celtics or 04 Pistons or something, then it really behooves you to have balance. And I feel like Miami can give you sort of that top 10 offense and top 10 defense and compete in the postseason that way. I just don't know. I mean, we're still like four and a half months away, right? Four months away from when they're going to actually have to really demonstrate that gear and they haven't been healthy I I don't know yet but they they would be the team that I would put a question mark next to is whether they can I guess because you not only do you have to be disruptive in the east but when I think about inner circle contenders I think about a four series team meaning you can beat championship level teams more than once in a series that that's sort of my my litmus test and I think Something about Miami that's that's really interesting in this case is I almost feel like Eric Spolstra likes coaching a not stacked team with a lot of talent. Like it, it almost feels like he he revels in building an offense that you can just like inject players into 
and it works. Like the amount of wrinkles they have into their their double stagger actions and their their dribble handoff actions and that sort of thing. It's just when I watch a play, like sometimes I'll be watching them now and I'm like, do they really need a point guard out there? I'm like, wait a second, they they have Kyle Lowry. And I'm like, wait, do they actually need like a strong passing and good defensive center? I'm like, wait, they still have Bam Adebayo coming back. So yeah. it's it's tough for me to like and Victor Oladipo is like hiding in the chat. What's what's Victor Oladipo? Like what's happening? What's happening? I assume he's not going to be part of this situation in any meaningful way. But are you, I mean, I don't know. I'm just not abreast to it. Are you saying that he could actually like come off the bench and be a solid guy in the playoff rotation? I mean, I thought last season, I don't want to put a percentage on it. Was he like 75% Oladipo? And I still feel like that's, it's not a bad player. Like box score stats, he was putting up some numbers. He had he had his burst for a little while. I don't think he was where he was defensively from his one breakout season, but he's still. I think he'd be a really good player for them. And I think locked in and defensively, he's the kind of guy that Spolster would like to have. And I think he would fit well next to Lowry and Butler on the perimeter. Wow, that would be wild. I did not even realize. Now his efficiency was six percentage points below league average on his true that's shooting. Bad. Yeah, that's bad. so that's ugly. But, I mean, the rest of his game, and when you come back from injury, you know, maybe that's a somewhat forgivable thing. But the rest of his game, statistically, in those thousand minutes he played, um, was decent. I mean, it's certainly <laughs> a lot better than I would have thought before you mentioned that. So that would be that would be wild if he could come back and be a part of their success. Um, any other thoughts on those contenders while we're on them? I mean... I wouldn't open that door too much because this will turn strictly into Milwaukee podcast if you let me turn it into that. <laughs> well, okay, I want to ask you one thing from the Bucks' perspective. Brooke Lopez, hmm. are we expecting him to be back this season? I'm pretty sure that I saw a report that said they are expecting him back before the playoffs, which scares me. Like that That's not like a optimistic timetable. Because it's not even being like, oh, we'll be able to ramp him up the last couple of weeks before the playoffs. They're saying he will be back. He might be back before the playoffs. And so, like, if he's back before the playoffs, is he playing like a good amount of minutes? What kind of shape is he going to be in? Like, he just missed an entire season with some of these players. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm a little pessimistic right now, and okay. I think them signing Demarcus Cousins is them also being pessimistic about him coming back. Do you think Boogie would be in the playoff rotation? I mean, I guess once you get to the playoffs, the point of DeMarcus Cousins in my mind was to save Giannis from just constantly being their drop big and getting beat up and stuff. So, no, those numbers will still probably tail off. But I don't know what happens when you play. uh, I don't even know how good they're going to be when they get to that point. Who knows? The 76ers, like, I I wouldn't want Giannis just guarding Joel Embiid for a series. That sounds awful. Okay. Yeah. No, I I have similar thoughts. I just also think Milwaukee... I mean, we don't want to. We don't want to turn it into a whole Bucks podcast. We already have your wonderful Midwestern decor, the 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 basement background, as we like to call it. Are are you even in the basement? I know we joke about that. No, I'm actually on the uh, the second floor. Yeah, here. the second floor f- filled with cherry woods and things like that. Um, not quite the vibe. It, it's it's just beautiful. I have to say, if people are watching this on YouTube, they might like be staring at me and saying like is is Cody shivering is he like nervous no our upstairs like doesn't really get heat very well and it's been like negative a thousand over here in Minnesota so it is I'm just legitimately very very cold right what now. is the actual temperature there 
So today was warm. It warmed up to like the mid twenties. Uh, <laughs> but that's over just, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> over the weekend, we were having like I think like negative seventeen a hit at some point. You're wearing a Hawaiian shirt. I had to fight the. I had to counter the vibe. I'm man. manifesting my own my own tropical oasis. Um, let's let's wrap with this. I finally was able to finish and and release the John Morant video this week. I had wanted to do something on him probably since the opening week of the season. He came out, you know, guns blazing, just on fire, and he missed 12 games with his knee injury. And what were what did what did Memphis end up doing? And the, they didn't really do anything special in those games, right? Did they? What what did they end up doing? No, they just had like a plus sixteen net rating or something like that, which would just you know blow the seventy one bucks and the whatever other ninety six teams out of the water. Yeah. Ninety six bulls. Yeah, someone's going to be mad that that wasn't the first all time team I thought of. They went they went ten and two, and they did have a ridiculous net rating, even if you take out their seventy three point. <laughs> exhibition game over <laughs> they the, beat the thunder over by the thund- 73 points yeah that, that doesn't really count that's that's so much of an outlier we don't even we don't even know what to make of it that was that was like popcorn night at the where was that game was that game in memphis I, it was in hell for for oklahoma city thunder. that that game was bring your that was bring your child to work day for the oklahoma <laughs> city thunder and they took it very literally even if you even if you remove that game they still had um Really, really strong point differential, I want to say around 8 to 11. It was big. It was big. And they went mm-hmm. 10 and 2. But as I pointed out in the video, I had made most of this video um, before he got injured. And then as this was happening, I thought, well, does this become a completely different video? But as I watched them, both without him and with him, it was very hard for me to pinpoint what was different? I think defensively, their effort was a little better. I think when a player goes out, um, especially a young team, that's the thing. A young team is trying, the, the Grizzlies, independent of Jaws' injury, were trying to find the right lineups, the right balance, the right gelling. Um, Dylan Brooks was injured early, and then he came back. Desmond Bain is trying to find his footing um footing might not even be the wrong word he's playing really well but it's like there's just a ton going on there Jaron Jackson continues to improve he's getting the defense back he's um you know without jaw his scoring goes up he's raining a bunch of three-pointers so there's a ton going on with this team and as I watched it my hypothesis was essentially that if I can't really tell that big of a difference this may have happened with jaw there anyway we'll never know but it seems like it may have happened and therefore the 73 point win aside and some hot games what is the rest of the season going to look like and if the rest of the season looks pretty good for memphis and they finish with home court then this becomes less of a you know are they better without jaw thing and more of a oh they just started to get hot right around that time and it was a coincidence and as i mentioned in the video I decided that was the direction. It's just not worth doing a whole video on it because when you look up the indicators for variance, they had absolutely bonkers shooting luck. Bonkers. Worth 11 points per game when Jaw was out versus when Jaw was in. Like you're talking about, if you look at all the open and wide open threes on NBA.com, you're talking about like, well, they shot 31% 
against the Grizzlies when Ja was out and 40 or 41% when he's in. And I'm a believer that those numbers can change a little bit depending on the quality of your defense. If you get, if you don't have to work quite as hard for that open shot, if you didn't have to run around along the screen, if it comes with three seconds on the shot clock and you're kind of time pressured versus 12 seconds on the shot clock, I think those things are real, but not 10 percentage points. That's, that's crazy. Um, and then you add in the fact that they had a softer schedule where not only were they playing easier teams that sometimes help you find that groove as a young and up and coming team, but also they were playing teams that had guys out for COVID. Like you catch Philadelphia and Embiid's out and that, and they just kind of had that a bunch. And so that ended up being my take and I'm kind of, we'll see what happens in the next month or two, but I'm kind of riding with that, that the Grizzlies probably would have done something like this anyway. The team I would point to, I don't think they're going to be as good. I don't think Memphis is going to really crack like the top five or six teams this year. But the team I would point to, just to make it really salient for folks, the 1999 Spurs, Tim Duncan's second year, you've got your Twin Tower stuff. You've got Popovich as the coach. David Robinson is now back. He's finding his role as maybe not the pure alpha guy. Um, you're working in 3 and D play, Jaron Jackson. And they started, I want to say they were under 500 in the, in the strike-shortened sh- season. Something like that. They were like six and nine to start the year. And then they just blitzed the league the rest of the way. So it is not unheard of or super uncommon for teams who need to come together and gel to have a bumpy part of the beginning of the season and then hit their stride. And I feel like that just may have happened with Jaw getting injured, like literally at that exact. I mean, the game he got injured, they lost by 32 points. So he played like five minutes and they lost by 32 points. So if you start adding that stuff in to the data, it starts to look a little bit more reasonable. Anyway, we'll see what happens. That's that's my take on that. I think Jaron Jackson's a really interesting player to specifically zoom in on this because uh, in games, and I looked this up probably, I actually think I do have all the, the Grizzlies games involved, but um, when Jaron plays uh, in the same game that Ja plays, he's scoring like 19.8 per 75 on negative five efficiency. And in those games when Ja was out, he ballooned up to like a 26 per 75 on a plus yep. 3% shooting. So his his efficiency skyrocketed like eight percentage points, which I, it just feels wrong that he would shoot that much better without Ja Morant, who's just so good at, at creating some of those open shots for players with his ridiculous driving ability. Yeah. Um, it's, in something the, I would, it's in the video. You can see it. There's a ton of missed threes off of Jaws kickouts, and those are from all those early games. And Jaron, at the first couple games of the year, I want to say off the top of my head, he really struggled from three. And I just think he's a better shooter than that. I think he thinks he's a better shooter. But sometimes you come in the offseason, you put work in the weight room, you, you practice all your stuff, you're really excited, the, the intensity ramps up. You want to work on your defense, which is probably a bigger thing even for him to stay out of foul trouble. And you just have like five or seven games where you're like, he, he was absurd. He was like four for 30. From I'm making that up. That's not the exact number. But if we pulled it up, um, he had a really, really bumpy stretch. And so I think to your point, that from individual players can can compound when the whole team kind of is, is hot or cold at one time. So something I did want to ask you about yes, is please. that you, you were able to address like the fact that shooting variance probably accounted for a big chunk of it. But the fact is that so Jaws played in, I think, 25 games right now. The Grizzlies are still only 13 and 12 in games and he's played and they have a negative three net rating. So like, 
where do you think they actually are right now? Because we have this weird outlier stretch where their shooting variance is, is ridiculous. Their shooting luck is ridiculous. We have this stretch where they're like a middling, actually maybe worse than 500 team when Jaws playing. Dylan Brooks is out for a good chunk of time here. Yep, yep. What are what are the Grizzlies? And I know you just, you just use the Spurs as an analogy, but... Yeah, they're not, I, they're yeah. not the Spurs. Um, but I do think they're one of those young up-and-coming teams like the 2010 Oklahoma City Thunder. I, I do think they're somewhere in that range. I can't remember where the Thunder finished in terms of margin of victory or SRS or anything like that, but I expect Memphis... I'm getting so hot takey here, Cody. Here we go. I love um, it. No, I just, I just... Looking at the standings and the way they're playing, I expect Memphis to have home court in the West, which kind of means they're locked into that four spot because I don't think barring injuries you're going to catch any of those three juggernaut teams way out in front but who's going to catch them from behind i'm literally pulling up basketball <laughs> reference right now as you ask this i mean i think denver if they get healthier is a real answer there they can rattle off wins i think you know people in los angeles the lakers the clip. I don't think. I don't know if the Clippers are just going to be healthy enough. Paul George is out for a few more weeks. I and I like the Clippers, but I think to catch Memphis at this point, you'd probably have to play at like a fifty-win pace. If you're one of those teams, what's the what is what is the? Can we just for posterity get the records um, of Memphis and the teams behind them? Do you have that in front of you? Yeah. So Memphis is the fourth seed right now, and they're twenty-three and fourteen. Yep. Denver is directly behind them, eighteen and sixteen. So there's still even a few wins behind them. Clippers are in sixth with 19 and 18. And then seventh, Lakers 19 and 19. Dallas 18 and 18. Minnesota yeah. 16 and 20. So, so you know, Dallas is another team that could potentially play better. But again, you're 18 and 18. That's four and a half behind Memphis, five, five in the wins column. Um, we're almost at the halfway point. Part of this is I just think Memphis is going to play well the rest of the way. You know, I don't I don't know what that leaves them for a final win total or even margin of victory. But I think at this point, Cody, I'd be kind of surprised if they're like a mid 40s plus two team. And I expect them to be more like, you know, can they get a five in front of their win total at the end of the season? And then what's their final SRS margin of victory? I, four, something like that, maybe. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of I see them as the fourth best team in the West right now. You, you, do you disagree? You're, you're, you're a little surprised by that. So I'm mentally going through each team right now. The Nuggets, I just, I just don't think they can be better than they are. Like Jokic is playing out of his mind and that team is just... They, they need Murray. They, that, yeah, they, they need, need Murray and more health. Clippers, we'll have to see what happens when Paul George come back, comes back. The Lakers, I don't know. LeBron is just going on some kind of a, a stretch right now and it'll be interesting to see what happens when Anthony Davis comes back because they've actually been like better in games he hasn't been playing, like sort of in the John Morant sort of zone. So we'll see if that LeBron zone and Anthony Davis can sync up there. Dallas, I don't know. Like all of these teams, I'm just expecting at some point, like, oh, Luka went on a tear for a month where he scored 40 points a game on like plus nine efficiency. Like Lillard did this, I think, two years ago when he averaged like, I don't know, there was like a seven game stretch when he literally averaged like 40 on yeah. plus 12 or something like that. Yeah, I think it, you meant Jalen Brunson, not, yeah, J- not Luka. Yeah. <laughs> Jalen Brunson is going to go on a tear. One hundred percent, what I meant. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. This is weird. This is it's all weird. No, I think one of the I think one of those things can happen 
And I still think that team probably finishes fifth. I mean, I guess, I guess part of just what I'm betting on is that I just like Memphis to win games in this league. There's a lot of parity in this league. I mean, we could have a whole next time we can talk about the Cavs um, because we got we got some Darius Garland Cavs stuff coming up on the on the channel on the YouTube channel, so we can we can get into them. But it's a similar thing. I just think those teams are good, and when you're playing, I mean, how many how many averageish teams are in the league right now? The parity in the middle of the league is really thick, and you're going to play these teams over and over and over again. And if you can rattle off wins at like a 60%, 65% clip against them, and then you steal a couple and you're competitive against the top teams, which I think both Memphis and Cleveland are, I, I just think you're going to finish pretty high in the standings. Yeah, you sold me on it. I, I definitely wouldn't want to be playing Memphis in the playoffs this year. I think they have that, not to get like so psychological here but like they have that sort of hunger right now where they go in the playoffs and they're just going to be like everywhere and people like dylan brooks are going to be frothing at the mouth and he's just going to be ready to tear tear everyone apart it's going to be great i can't that's wait it. to see memphis in the playoffs just whoever wants it more that's yeah that's it. what it is yeah. that's Feel, basketball feeling is. basketball podcast yeah that's what we're going to change the name to um cody that was very fun how do you think it went i think it went i think it went pretty well I think people are going to be disappointed that you didn't just say that the Memphis Grizzlies fell prey to the Ewing theory or whatever it is that it's called when the rest player's out. Yeah. Uh, I think that's what the people came here for. They and did. They're going to walk away very sad. They did. I don't know why. Jaw's such a such a fun player to me. Yeah. Um, if you want to support this podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. I don't even know what kind of extras we have there. We've got all kinds of extras. I think there might be an extra... Darius Garland director's cut like a super long someone went crazy and made like a 16 minute Darius Garland video I think you can find that over there we have a community we've got a proprietary stats leaderboard that updates daily our next Q&A when's that coming up Cody I think the end of the month we just did one around Christmas right I always feel like it was like the last weekend that we did it that's what it feels like to me yeah. yeah, every time Rob asks me when the next Q and A is, I'm like, wait, we just that was last weekend. We just did that, um, but we do those every monthly. They're super fun. They're a chance to sit down and not only bounce questions off me and go back and forth, but get into esoteric things that never come up on this podcast or maybe anywhere else on the nooks and crannies of the internet. I mean, the some of the topics we get are wild. We still haven't recovered from what my NBA career would look like if I had a 75 inch vertical leap. Um, That is it. As always, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this one. And uh, of course, I hope you are having a great day.